Thursday, August 15th, 2019. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon, and tonight we present a discussion on the ancient Sibylline oracles created or recreated in Greco-Roman Alexandria in the first centuries of the Common Era. These prophetic verses attributed to the Sibyl or prophetic priestesses of ancient Greece were actually a hoax written by Jewish and Christian Gnostics in an attempt to recast the legendary lost prophetic books of ancient Rome to include the Bible and to predict Christianity. They were so successful and popular that the early Christian church approved of them. They were accepted into the Hermetic tradition along with the Orphic hymns and the Chaldean oracles. They became an influence on Western magic, witchcraft, and fairy lore. Now we will refer to Jake Stratton Kent's summary of the oracles in his book, Geosophia 2010, and Milton Terry's translation of 1899. So, if you want to catch up on this often forgotten aspect of Western magical lore, stay with us and we'll look at the veil. Now, first, I want to apologize for not doing a Hermetic Hour show on the Sibylline Oracles years ago when we first began to examine the, cl- the classics of the Hermetic tradition. The 12 books of what Professor Milton Carey dubs the pseudo-Sibylline Oracles ranked, along with the Chaldean Oracles and the Orphic Hymn, as important ancient source works aligned with the Hermetic tradition. These books of prophecy, alleged to be the lost sacred books of ancient Rome, were recreated by Jewish and Christian Gnostics in Greco-Roman Alexandria, circa 200 to 300 AD, in an attempt to amalgamate classical pagan and biblical tradition. And we might say that this process became a template for writing magical books, such as the later grimoires attributed to King Solomon in early medieval times. But the Sibylline Oracles survived the church's Gnostic purge in the early centuries and were even mentioned by the church fathers. With this implied imprimatur, they survived through the Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, and up to the present day. They influenced the British fairy lore of Elizabethan magic, see the Book of Oberon, written in 1577, and the British witchcraft tradition, see Discovery of Witchcraft, 1548. And more recently, Richard S. Shaver's Ernest Cliff and Fantastic Adventures, 1949. The oracles, perhaps we should say the pseudo-oracles, probably influenced Dante and Shakespeare and have been in print ever since the 1500s. However, Behind every good hoax, there lies an ancient legend or myth. In the case of the oracles, it was the legend of the lost sacred books of ancient Rome. According to the story, Rome was originally a kingdom before it became a republic. This dates back to Solomon's time, the 7th century B.C., when the southern half of Italy was called Greater Greece and was basically Greek. Rome, at that time, was Etruscan, but... That is not mentioned in the legend. In any case, a priestess of Apollo, the sun god who is worshipped by the Greeks and the Etruscans, the Etruscans called him Apulu, offered nine books of prophecy to the Roman, perhaps the Etruscan king. Now, the price that the Sibyl demanded was too high, and he refused. She promptly burned three of the books and then offered him the remaining six at twice the price she had demanded for the nine books. Well, again, he refused. She burned three more books and again doubled the price for the remaining three books. Now, at this point, the king became alarmed, and he consulted his augurs or shamans. They, too, were alarmed, and they insisted that he buy the three remaining books. He paid the priestess, and the books became the sacred oracles of Rome. They were only consulted in times of national emergence. Hundreds of years later... They did predict Rome's defeat of the Carthaginian general Hannibal. After a fire destroyed them in 83 BC, the Senate, the Roman Senate, sponsored a reconstruction based on similar works from Greece and Anatolia. Later, Augustus Caesar is said to have consulted them. 
That's the second recension, of course. But that version was subsequently destroyed by Roman general Flavius Stilcio in 408 A.D. Apparently, our present version of the oracles, the third recension, the pseudo-oracles, were created in Alexandria before General Stilcio destroyed the second version in Rome. Apparently, the Gnostic writers were aware that the old Etruscan originals were long gone, and they were, they were free to channel the ghosts of the Sibyls or use their imaginations with their Bibles and their Gospels at hand. In any case... It's a wonderful mystery and intellectual treasure hunt. And we are indebted to Jake Stratton Kent for his excellent survey of the Sibylline Oracles in Geosophia 2010, which includes period illustrations of the prolific ladies. And we should also acknowledge Professor Milton Terry for his definitive translation of the third version, the Pseudo-Sibylline Oracles, and that was published in 1899 from which we will read Book 1. Now, Book 1 is the Sibylline version of the biblical book of Genesis. And by the way, uh, I have a leather-bound uh, edition of, of uh, Milton Terry's uh, Sibylline Oracles on the way, but that's rather expensive. But if you uh, want to go to, to, to the sacred texts online, you can find the whole Terry's entire translation uh, on uh, PDF, and you can you can read it on on screen or you can print it out. And what I'm going to do, seeing as how it's it's been public domain for several thousand years, uh, I'm going to read Book One, uh, which is based on on the Book of which is the Sibylline or the pseudo Sibylline version of the Book of Genesis. And I'll get to it. And this is. This is Milton Terry's translation when we get to, here we are. Beginning with the generations first of mortal men, down to the very last, I'll prophesy each thing, what has been and what is now and what shall yet befall. The world through the impiety of men. First, now God urges on me to relate truly how into being came the world, and thou, shrewd mortal, prudently make known, lest ever thou shouldst my commands neglect. The King Most High, who brought into existence the whole world, saying, Let there be, and there was. For he the earth established, placing it round about Tartarus, and he himself gave the sweet light. He raised the heaven on high, spread out the gleaming sea, and crowned the sky with an abundance of bright shining stars, and decked the earth with plants, and mingled sea with rivers, and the air with zephyrs mixed, and watery clouds, and then another race, appointing he gave fishes to the seas, and birds to the winds, and to the woods the beasts of shaggy neck, and snakes that crawl in all things which now on earth appear. And these by his words he made, and everything was speedily and with precision done. For he was self-caused, and from heaven looked down and finished, was the world exceedingly well. And then thereafter fashioned he again a living product, copying a new man from his own image, beautiful, divine, and bade him in an ambrosial garden dwell, that labors beautiful might be his care. And in that fertile field of paradise, he longed for conversation, being alone, and prayed that he might see another form such as he had. And forthwith, from man's side, taking a bone, God himself made fair Eve, a wedded spouse, and in that paradise gave her to dwell with him. And when he gazed upon her on a sudden filled with joy, great admiration held his soul. He saw a pattern so exact, and with wise words, spontaneous, flowing, answered he in turn, for God had care for all things. For the mind they darkened not with passion, nor concealed their nakedness. But with hearts far from evil, even like wild beasts, they walked with limbs exposed, and afterward delivering them commands. God showed them not to touch a certain tree. 
that the dread serpent drew them off by guile to go away into the fate of death and to gain knowledge of both good and evil. But the wife then first traitorous proved to God. She gave and urged the unknowing man to sin. And he, persuaded by woman's words, forgot the immortal maker utterly and treated plain commandments with neglect, and therefore, instead of good, received the evil, according to their need, their deed. And then the leaves of the sweet fig tree piercing, they made clothes and put them on each other and concealed their sexual parts because they were ashamed. But on them the immortal set his wrath and cast them out of the immortal land, for their abiding now in mortal land was brought to pass, since hearing they kept not the word of the immortal mighty God, and straightway they upon the fruitful soil forthgoing with their tears and groans were wet. And to them then the immortal God himself a word more excellent spoke, multiply, increase, work constantly upon the earth, that with the sweat of labor ye may have sufficient food, and thus he spoke, and he made the author of deceit to press the ground on belly and on side a crawling snake, driving him out severely. And he sent dire enmity between them and the one, and is on the lookout to preserve his head. But man his heel for death his neighbor near of evil plotting vipers and of men. And then indeed the race was multiplied, as the Almighty himself gave command. And there grew up one people on another, innumerable, and houses they adorned of all kinds and made cities and their walls well and expertly. And to them was given a day of long time for a life much loved, for they did not warn for they did not worn out with troubles die, but as subdued by sleep, most happy men of great heart, whom the immortal Saviour loved, the God, the king, God, but they also did transgress, smitten with folly, for with impudence they mocked their fathers and their mothers scorned, kinsmen they knew not. And they formed intrigues against their brothers, and they were impure, having defiled themselves with human gore, and they made wars. And then upon them came the last calamity set forth from heaven, which snatched the dreadful men away from life, and Hades then received them. It was called Hades, since Adam, having tasted death, went first and earth encompassed him around, and therefore all men born upon the earth." are in the abodes of Hades called to go. And even in Hades, all these when they came had honor, since they were the earliest race. But when Hades received them, secondly, of the surviving and most righteous men, God formed another very subtle race that cared for lovely works and noble toils, distinguished reverence and solid wisdom. And they were trained in arts of every kind, finding inventions by their lack of means. And one devised to till the land with plows, another worked in wood, another cared for sailing, another watched the stars and practiced augury with winged fowls. And use of drugs and interest for one, while for another magic had a charm, and others were in every other art, which men care for, instructed wide awake, industrious, worthy of that eponym, because they had a sleepless mind within, and a huge body, stout with mighty form they were, but notwithstanding, down they went, into, into Tartarian chambers terrible, kept in firm change to pay full penalty in Gehenna of strong, ferocious, quenchless fire. And after these, a third strong-minded race appeared, a race of overbearing men and terrible, who wrought among themselves many an evil, and fights and homicides and battles did continually destroy. And these men possessed of overwhelming heart, and from these afterward another race proceeded, 
Late completed, youngest born, blood-stained, perverse in counsel. Of men, these were the fourth race. Much the blood they spilled, nor feared they God, nor had regard for men, for maddening wrath and sore impiety were sent upon them. And wars, homicides, and battles sent some into Erebus, and since they were overweening impious men. But the rest did the heavenly God himself in anger afterwards change from this world, casting them into mighty Tartarus, down under the foundation of the earth. And later, yet another race, much worse, of men he made, to whom no good thereafter the immortal form, since they wrought many evils, and they were much more violent than those giants. Perverse, foul language pouring out, single among all men, most just and true. Was this the most faithful Noah, full of care for the noblest works? And to him God himself from heaven thus spoke, Noah, be of good cheer in thyself, and to all the people preach repentance, so that they may all be saved. But if with a shameless soul they heed you not, the whole race I will utterly destroy with mighty floods of waters. Quickly now, an undecaying house I bid thee frame of planks strong and impervious to the wet, and I will put understanding in thy heart, and subtle skill and rule of measurement, and order, and for all things I will care that thou be saved, and all who dwell with thee. And I am he who is, and in thy heart, do thou discern, I clothe thee with the heaven, and cast the sea around me. And for me, earth is a footstool, and the air is poured around my body. And on every side, around me runs the chorus of the stars. Nine letters have I, of four syllables I am, discern me. And the first three have each two letters, the remaining one, the rest. The five are mates. And of the entire sum, the hundreds are twice eight, and thrice three tens, along with seven, not knowing who I am. But thou not uninitiated in my lore. <laughs> I'm going to interject in here. I, I, I'm sure Edward Kelly and John D. read this. Thus he spoke. And great trembling seized on him and what he heard. And then within his mind, having contrived each matter, he besought the people and began with words like these. O oh, men, insensate, smite with madness, great, whatever things ye practiced, they shall not escape God's notice. For he knows all things, immortal Savior, overseeing all. Who bade me warn you that ye perish not, be sober, cut off badness, do not fight, preforce each other with blood guilty heart, nor irrigate much land with human gore. Revere, O mortals, the supremely great and fearless heavenly creator, God imperishable, whose dwelling is the sky. And do ye all entreat him, he is kind for life of cities and of all the world, and of four-footed beasts and flying fowls, and treat him to be gracious unto all, for when the whole unbounded world of men shall be destroyed by waters, loud ye'll raise a fearful cry, and suddenly for you the air shall be dis uh, disordered, and from heaven the fury of the mighty God shall come upon you, and it certainly shall be that the immortal Savior among men will send wrath if ye do not placate God, and from this time repent, and nothing more. Fretful and evil lawlessly shall ye one another do, but let there be a guarding of oneself by holy life. But when they heard him, each turned upon his nose, calling him mad, a frenzy-smitten man. A bed did Noah sound this strain, O man exceeding wretched, base in heart, unstable, leaving modesty behind, and loving shamelessness and rapacious lords, fierce sinners, false insensate, mischievous, in nothing true, stealthy adulterers, flippant in language, pouring forth foul words, the wrath of God must 
high, not fearing, kept to the fifth generation to atone. And in no way do ye wail, harsh men, but laugh. Sardonic smile shall ye laugh. When shall come that which I speak? God's dire incoming flood. When Eve's polluted race in the great earth, blooming perennial and impervious stem, shall root and branch in one night disappear, and cities, men and all, shall the earth shaker. From the depths scatter and all their walls destroy, and then the whole world of unnumbered men shall die. But now I shall weep, how lament, how lament, in wooden house that mingle tears with waves, for if this water-bidden God shall come, earth shall float, hills float, and even sky shall float. Everything shall be water, and all things shall be destroyed by water, and the winds shall stand still. And a second age shall come, O Phrygia, thou shalt from the water's crest first rise up, and thou first another race of men shall nourish. Once again a new beginning, and thou shalt be nurse for all. There's a footnote, uh, yeah, yeah, Terry has a footnote on Phrygia, and uh, there's a footnote on Phrygia down here, I'm breaking here to say that. The statement of Herodotus, the Phrygians were the most ancient of mankind. Now, Phrygia is right in the middle of Anatolia, which is to present-day Turkey, and it's pretty close to Mount Ararat, and of course, they, 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 at least the, 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 the pseudo civils thought that Mount Ararat was in Phrygia, but this is where the, yeah, this is where the, 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 this particular generation of human beings was supposed to start. Uh, all right, back to the, back to the scriptures. First rise up, and thou first another race of men shall nourish once again a new beginning, and thou shalt be nursed for all. But when thou to the lawless generation he had thus vainly spoken, the Most High appeared, and once more cried aloud and said, The time is now come, Noah, to proclaim each thing, even all which I that day do thee did promise and confirm and to complete, because of a people disobedient throughout the boundless world, even all of the things which generations of a former time did practice evil things innumerable. But do thou quickly enter with thy son and the wives, call as many as, as I bid, of tribes and beasts of creeping things and birds, and as many as I ordain for life. Will I then put a willingness to go? Thus spoke he, forth went Noah, and uh, aloud cried and called, and then wife and bride entered the house of wood, and then also went all the other things as many as God willed to shut up. But when fitting a bolt was put on the lid, and in its polished place was fitted sideways, and then was brought to pass forth with the purpose of the God of heaven, and he massed clouds and did the sun's bright disk and moon and stars and circle of heaven, obscuring all things round. He thundered loud, terror of mortals sending lightnings forth, and all the winds together were aroused, and all the veins of water were unloosed by the opening the great cataracts from heaven, and from earth's caverns and the tireless deep appeared the myriad waters, and the whole illimitable earth was covered over. But on the water swam that wondrous house, and torn by many furious waves and struck by force of winds, it rushed out on fear, fearfully. But with its keel it cut the mass of foam, and while the loud babbling waters dashed around it, but when God deluged all the world with rain, then also Noah took thought to observe by counsel of the immortal. For he now had had enough of Nereus. That's a that's a Greek a Greek uh, ocean god. And straightway the house he opened from the polished wall that crosswise was bound fast with skillful stays and looking out upon a mighty mass of boundless waters Noah on all sides. And twas his fortune with his eyes to see. Fear possessed and shook mightily his heart. And then the air became a little calm and it was weary wetting all the world. Many days parting 
Then it brought to light how pale and blood red was the mighty sky and the sun's disc. Uh, the sun's disc, wearied, scarcely held Noah his courage. And then forth afar he sent a dove alone that he might learn if yet firm land appeared. But with tired wing, flying round all things, she again returned, for not yet had the water ebbed away, for it was deeply filling every place. But after resting quietly four days, he sent the dove once more to learn if yet and it had ceased the many waters. And she flew and flew on and went o'er the earth and resting her body lightly on the humid ground again to Noah back she came and bore an olive branch of tidings, a great sign, courage now filled them all and great delight because they hoped because they hoped to look upon the land. But then thereafter yet another bird of black wing sent he forth as hastily, which trusting to its wings flew willingly, and coming to the land continued there, and no one knew the land was nearer now, but went on dashing waves the craft divine had here and there or ocean's billows swum, and it was made fast upon the narrow strand, and there is in Phrygia on the dark mainland, a steep, tall mountain, Ararat, its name, because upon it all were to be saved from death. And there was a great desire of heart, and then streams of great river Marasus, Marsias, spring. And there on a lofty peak the ark abode, and when the waters ceased, and then again from heaven a voice divine of the great God this word proclaimed O Noah guarded faithful just come boldly forth with thy sons and thy wife and the three brides and fill ye all the earth increasing multiplying rendering justice to one another through all the generations until judgment every race of men shall come for judgment shall be unto all and thus spoke the voice divine, and then from his couch Noah encouraged, hastened on the land, and with him went his sons and his wife and brides, and, and creeping things and birds and quadrupeds, and all the things else went from the wooden house, the ark, into one place, and then went Noah forth as eighth most chest of men, when the waters he had made full twice twenty days and one, because of counsels of the mighty God. And then a new stock of life arose, golden first, which indeed was sixth and best. And from the time when the first formed man appeared, heavenly its name, because all things to God shall be a care. O first race of sixth age of mighty joy, which I thereafter shared. And when I escaped sheer ruin by the waves, much tossed, with husband and brothers-in-law, stepfather and stepmother, and with wives of husbands, brothers suffering terribly. Fitting things now I will sing. There shall be on the fig tree a many-colored flower, and afterward the royal power and sway shall Kronos have. For three kings of great soul, men must just shall distribute portions then, and many a year rule, rendering what is just. And to men who care for toil and deeds of love, the earth shall glory in her many fruits, still growing, yielding much corn for the race. And the foster fathers, ageless in all their days, shall from diseases chill and dreadful be. And for aloof, they shall die as fallen on sleep. And unto Archeron and the, and the abodes of Hades shall they go. And there shall they have honor since they were a race of blessed ones, fortunate heroes, whom the Lord of Shabbat gave a noble mind, and with whom all was his counsel shared. But blessed shall they be even when they go in Hades. And then afterward, again oppressive, strong, another second race of earth-born men, the Titans. All excel in figure, stature, growth, and there shall be one language, as of old from the first race, God in their breasts implanted. But even these, having a haughty heart and rushing on to ruin, shall at last resolve to fight against the starry heaven.
and then the stream of the great ocean shall pour shall upon them pour its raging waters. Sounds like Atlantis. But the mighty Lord of Sabbath, through though engaged, shall check his wrath, because he promised that again no flood should be wrought upon men of evil soul. But when the giant, when the great high thundering God shall cause the boundless swelling of the many waters with their waves hither and thither rising high to cease from wrath and into other depths of sea their measure lessen, setting bounds by harbors and rough headlines round the land. And then shall a child of the great God come, clothed in flesh to men and fashioned like mortals in the earth. And he doth hear four vows, and two consonants in him are twice announced. The whole sum I will name for eight ones, and as many tens on those, and yet eight hundred will reveal the name. Oh, this sounds Enochian, doesn't it? To men has in insensate, and do thou discern in thine own understanding that the Christ is child and the immortal God most high, and he shall fulfill God's law and not destroy, bearing his very image in all things, and he shall teach. Unto him shall priests convey and offer gold and myrrh and frankincense. For all these things he'll also bring to pass, but when a voice shall through the desert land come bearing tidings to men and to all, shall call to make straight paths, and from the sea he cast wickedness out and illuminate. With water all the bodies of mankind, that being born, they may no more from what is righteous go astray. And one of barbarous mind by dances bound, cutting that voice off shall bestow reward, and then on a sudden there shall be a sign to mortals, when watched over there shall come. Out of the land of Egypt a fair stone, and on it shall be the Hebrew people, and on it shall be the Hebrew people stumble, but by his guiding nations shall be brought together. For the God who rules on high, they also shall know through him and the way in common light. For unto chosen men will he show life eternal, but the fire will be for ages on the lawless bring. And then shall he the sickly heal, and all who are blameworthy who shall trust in him. And then the blind shall see, and the lame shall walk, and the deaf shall hearken, and the dumb shall speak, and demons he shall drive out, and of the dead there shall be an uprising, and all of the ways shall he walk, and also in a desert place shall he five thousand satisfy with food, and from five loaves and a fish out of the sea, and with the remnants of them for the hope of the peoples shall he fill twelve baskets full. And then shall Israel drunken not discern, nor shall they hear oppressed with feeble uh, with feeble ears. But when the maddening wrath of the Most High shall come upon the Hebrews and take faith away from them, because they slew the Son of the Heavenly God, then also with foul lips shall Israel give him cuffs and spittle, drugged, and gall for food and vinegar unmixed mixed for drink will they with evil madness smitten in bosom and in heart. Give him piously, not seeing with their eyes, more blind than moles, more terrible than crawling poisonous beasts, fast bound by heavy sleep. But when his hand was, he shall spread forth and measure all things, and bear the crown of thorns, and they shall pierce his side with reeds, for, he, for which dark, monstrous night shall be for three hours in the midst of day, and then shall the temple of Solomon bring to an end a mighty sign for men when he shall to the house of Hades go, proclaiming resurrection to the dead. But when in three days he shall come again unto the light and show his form to men and teach all things ascending in the clouds, 
Unto the house of heaven shall he go, leaving the world a gospel covenant. And in his name shall blossom a new shoot. And from nations that are guided by the law of the mighty one. But also this. There shall be wise guides, and then afterward there shall be a confession. There shall be a secession of the prophets. And after that, when the Hebrew people reap their evil harvest, shall a Roman king much gold and silver utterly destroy. And after shall other royal powers continuously arise as kingdoms perish, and they will oppress mortals. But great fall shall be for those men when they shall begin unrighteous arrogance but when the temple of solomon and the holy land shall fall cast down by barbarous men and brazen mail and from the land of the hebrews shall be driven wandering and wasted among the wheat they shall much darnell mingle and there shall be evil contention among all mankind and the cities suffering outrage shall bewail each other in their breasts, receiving wrath of the great God, since they wrought evil work. And so ends book one. Now, uh, let's have a little commentary on that. As uh, you probably realize, there's a lot of of fallen angels and the giants that walk the earth. And and it seems, it seems that, that, uh, it's almost a blueprint for Blavatsky and all her various races. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I don't know how much influence it had on Blavatsky, but it, but it appears that it may have had had some. But it certainly had influence. It certainly had influence on Dean Kelly. I don't think there's any doubt about that. We get that we get that that coded. And then later on, later on in the oracles, there there is an oracle very much like the Book of Revelation. A sibylline oracle that that they have that they have recast along the line of the Book of Revelation. So you can see that what this is 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 as as I pointed out, it's an attempt to 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 have a a blending, an amalgamation of Greek of classical Greek and Greco-Roman mythology and the Bible and and Christianity and uh, and of course. You might you might say also that it's that it's that, that, that it's ferociously at least in, in toward the end is ferociously anti-Semitic, uh, in 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 the, in, the, in but uh, that 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 was probably that was probably a Christian rewrite. It might have actually uh, this this might have the pseudo the pseudo oracles themselves might have gone through several rewrites and and uh, the Jewish. It's very possible that a Jewish Gnostic did the first draft of this one, and a Christian Gnostic came along and did the second draft. That's a possibility. Um, but in any case, uh, we have time. I think that we can go into a modern into a modern uh, um, version of uh, of uh, the, the sibling oracles. Uh, we can dip into Richard Shaver's Ertis Cliff, uh, in which uh, in which his character Durga, Durga, uh, seeks wisdom, and Durga, uh, Durga has a has a girlfriend who who doesn't think that he's very bright or serious about anything. So Durga decides he's going to go off and find wisdom. So Durga goes uh, goes contacts the Red Dwarf, who actually is is Red Dwarf's actually the devil, but but he's uh, Shaver pictures him as a as a as a as a red dwarf with a long tail, and he writes in a book. He has a big the red dwarf has this big book, and he dips his tail his his spiked tail into an inkwell, and he writes uh, he writes uh, the book with his with his tail with with this inkwell, you know, and it's sort of a pun, you know, like the he writes the tail he writes his tail with his tail, and anyway, uh, the red dwarf directs. Durga Durga into a cave, into a cavern, where he's uh, where he's going to find wisdom. And of course, what he finds is uh, the original Sibylline books. So uh, let's go back to 1949 and uh, pick up uh, Durga going into the into the cave to read the Sibylline books. So wait just a second. 
Druga came at last to the door of the chamber of the three books and looked timidly within. For the door of the chamber had inscribed upon its panels a legend in the Sibylline that looks so much like Latin but is not. That is rum. It took Druga some time to translate that. He decided that the the, the ethnic source of the word was probably emphasized into lad's study from the Latin leus rum, in effect meaning wine, since wine is truth, and certainly truth and wisdom are much alike. He pushed back the great door, not hearing certain screams from the rear and entered. There were three great tab- tables across the room. And chained upon the three tables were the three great metal-bound books. It was as much as Druga could do to lift the cover of the first book. And after after he had decided that the legend on the cover meant Book of the Past. Cerise's catalog, the antiques, was the work of Cerise Rubigo. And it was only natural that the Sybil, best known for her wisdom, should have written the catalog. To you who criticize and disbelieve such writers of the past, it would, of course, have looked like an old Susan Roebuck catalog, but then you cannot read the words written by the Sibylline uh, in the days before the modern conveniences. And progress have done away with all the need for her wisdom, as well as the need of learned books in the latest room. Many of the pages were torn as was only natural for so old a book. But Druga sprawled on the big table and read. And as he read, his quick mind and fertile imagination quickly mastered all the intricacies of terminology and the definition which distinguished the Sibylline from ordinary Latin. And the time flowed by like water over a dam as he read and absorbed all that was known of the mighty past of the planet, had gone to sleep when her strength and vast mind had animated and controlled all innumerable creatures of the earth into tremendous symphony of organized life meaning. Sounds like Avatar. As he learned, he wept. For that time was infinitely more interesting and active than the dull period in which his own life had been placed. When the Mother Earth slept and bothered not with life on her surface, when the great lit, when the great limbed God did not did not do sorceries or indulge in the natural creation relaxation of a God, but only slept motionless and and, and, and sour-faced forever, he wept for that. Happy time when there was a life worth living on this sad planet. And he prayed to mother, uh, to the mother to awake and once more make life into something that would grace her great skin with proper ornamentation. It could well be that she heard him, for that there was no ordinary for, for for that was no ordinary ladies' room. Certain it was that he sensed a mighty feminine presence and heard more than one feminine voice. And a critic whispered in his ear that these voices were only from women who were hiding in the rear of the room and objecting to his presence. But such torrid whispers were not for him, for he sought the truth as a man should. It was not every man who gets into the archive of that secret antique type where reposed all the knowledge of the past, present, and future. Here reposed truth ordinarily denied the eyes of all men. Druga felt a mighty weariness as he closed the last pages of that age-forgotten book, the catalog of Ceres, Rubigo, the Sibylline historian. For the vast time had fled by as his mind coursed through the endless corridors of wisdom which the knowledge on the pages had opened to him. And like a mighty wind, the truths in the book had blown down all the forest of ignorance before him. A mighty feminine voice, which no critic could deny,
deny. Now came shuddering and echoing into the room, saying, Now you know the truth about the Sibylline, their studies of the past, about the women of the past, and about old women and witchcraft and magic, and all such wisdom everywhere, and about all the wisdom your small head can contain has been poured into you. Are you not satisfied? Will you now go away and leave us in peace? But Druga was no ordinary man, and he said, Well, you sound as if you were freezing, and you sound like nobody I ever heard. But I will form my own conclusions about wisdom, and when it is that I have attained it, and I am not quite sure that what I have read is true. How can I know that? Truth is something no man can ever come by, for there is so very much to know about even the slightest manifestation of infinite energy. So many interlocking electrochemical, psychological, universal influx flow changes to consider, enumerate, and otherwise think about that no man can ever know the full truth about anything, much less recognize it when he sees it. So give up like a good boy and go and let us immortals have our archive without your in intrusion. For I am very cold in this hyperspace into which I have extruded my naked body is not insolent. Druga, for answer, opened the second book on the table, saying, I came here to obtain wisdom, and I have found the archive where much knowledge is hidden from the sight of man, and I intend to remain here until wisdom is mine. And if you don't like the place where you have hidden yourself from me, why come and reveal yourself to me and don't worry so much about ethics? Sure, it was, abused, it was an abused word anyway. No one should make himself as uncomfortable as you sound for the sake of avoiding the eyes of a mortal and that a well-meaning simple youth like myself who could make evil out of nothing whatsoever. And as Druga turned to the great cover of the second book and read the great inscription on the flyleaf, Book of the Present, by Elliman Sylvanus, with corrections and later insertions and explanations by Silenius. And as he read that, there came a sound like a clap of thunder, and for an instant the chamber whirred like a revolving door with a draft of hyperspace, where my lady had hid hidden herself from Druga. And for an instant he was treated to the sight of a vast white limb of a goddess. And who she was, he did not know. But a great shuddering came over him, and he learned vastly more in an instant than ever mortal was privileged to learn since the antique times when the earth was alive. The goddess caught up a bit of blueness like the sky from the floor where she had dropped it. She clouded it about herself, until only her eyes were visible, and those eyes glared down upon Druga angrily. Do you know what is the usual punishment for mortals who intrude upon Diana's bath? That is a bit of wisdom denied me, said Druga, still shuddering from the effect of too much beauty revealed too suddenly. I will be taught you. It will be taught you very soon, said Diana, and her voice sounded much too much like a harpy to suit Druga, and his shuddering body kept with the movement, but somehow became translated from desire to fear and to add shudders to shivers. Diana stalked from the room. The sky blew a wrap, parting, revealing about the graceful long legs of the huntress, and she left a small squealing mob of visible and of, of visible invisibles poured out of the hyperspace and shot past Druga in her wake. And he knew they were her maiden and were also forbidden to show themselves to mortal man. And Druga heartily despised them uh, for, for cravens. And for he would have liked to see much more of them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that go at, at that point. Uh... And that, I say, that, that 
section of, of uh, uh, is from is from the tale of the Red Dwarf who writes with his tail, uh, and this is from uh, from the May the May 1949 issue of Fantastic Adventures, and uh, it's by Richard S. Shaver. And Shaver, by the way, uh, was very much influenced by the by the by the Sibylline oracles. Uh, he he uh, Richard Shaver was. From a uh, from a very literate family, by the way, his his mother and his father were both writers, and they had they had a very uh, very good library, and Saver was really steeped in classics, and and uh, uh, so this uh, the tale of the Red Dwarf we've we've uh, covered that on the Hermetic Hour before the uh, the Red Dwarf's uh, uh, stories. And uh, so you might look through the archives and catch up on that. But the one thing I want to point out about the, the, the sibling oracles before we, uh, you know, before we we close, is the one that the section that I read you on Genesis. You see how much in there on 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 the fallen angels, on the uh, on the giants in the earth, and on the antediluvians, the the whole uh, the whole. Outline of Antediluvian society that was destroyed by the flood, and the references to Phrygia, and and uh, so much, so much of of, uh, of the mystery of the mysteries of the Western tradition are to be found in the Sibylline oracles. They're uh, and as I said, they 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 figure in 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 European witchcraft and fairy lore. Uh, well, they influenced Dante. They influenced Shakespeare. They they they've had a tremendous influence on the uh, on the Western esoteric tradition. So, I hope that we have given you a glimpse into the the Sibylline oracles and given you an idea of their place in the Hermetic tradition. I'm looking forward. By the way, I I ordered a leather bound copy of, of Milton Terry's uh, translation, that, the one that I read you for our library, and I'm looking forward to it. Now, if we find in the course of studying this, the Sibylline oracles, if we find some of the other ones that have that have very interesting secrets to to reveal, we might do another show. We might do another show on them. And meanwhile, come back next week. We'll have another exploration into the Hermetic Mysteries. And until then, have a good weekend and good magic.